It means the Lord is our righteousness. And uh, I've got a sheet coming around. Brandon's handing that out. And uh, the Lord is our righteousness. So that is what we are going to look at tonight. And the root word for Sidkenu comes from a word that means straight. So when we talk about the righteousness of God in the context, we're going to be looking at Jeremiah 23, chapter, uh, J- Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6. Sidkenu, the Lord is our righteousness. The word means straight. It's the opposite of crooked is what we're talking about tonight. Leviticus chapter 1936 talks about this. You got your Bibles? Flip over to Leviticus chapter 19 verse 36. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 35. Uh, God's telling the people, you should do no wrong in judgment, in measurement or weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just hand. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So there we see the word, you should do no wrong in justice, you shall have the right weight, you shall not be crooked, you shall be straight, you shall, you shall uh, deal with people in a righteous manner. Deuteronomy chapter 16 verse 18 also talks about this when talking about appointing people to, to lead or to, to, to judge over the people. He says to appoint people of righteousness. Uh, and it's very important to God, the, the whole concept of righteousness. So if you've got your Bibles, flip over to Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6. And that's where we'll be uh, for a good part of tonight. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6. Actually, let's start reading verse 5. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. I've been uh, reading through the chronological Bible this year. uh, And um, one of the things that I've noticed and uh, you know, I've known this in the past, but when you read through it, you go through the chronological Bible, you begin to, to, to note patterns, and you begin to see things that are a little bit, a little bit uh, discouraging. You know, I, you look at the, at, the, at the nation of Israel, the, the people of God, and throughout the, the beginning of the Old Testament, you see their cycles of disobedience, the way that they, in the Bible would say, the people followed after God and God blessed them, or the people uh, did not follow after God and God brought a curse upon them. And it's just cycle after cycle of obedience and disobedience. And, and really, it's kind of scary because, and I mentioned this uh, during the men's prayer breakfast Thursday morning, if we, if we step back from the passages in the Old Testament of the, the, the times of disobedience, it's, it's scary because we can see ourselves in that. You know, you think about, you think about uh, the ways that the people of God saw God work, the, the miraculous things they saw God do, and then they turned away and quit following him, or they followed after other gods. You think about Moses coming down from the mountain after he is you know, he's been with the Lord and he comes down off the mountain and what does he see the people doing? He sees the people bowing down to a golden image that they had created. After seeing all the mighty things God had done, they turn and do that. Or even in the New Testament, we think about the disciples. You know, they had seen Jesus raise a man from the dead. They had seen Jesus walk on water. They had seen Jesus feed the multitudes with just a few fish and a few pieces of bread. And then when Jesus is handed over to the authorities, they scatter. They're afraid. They run. And we see those cycles of, of disobedience. And 
really we see all of the historical warnings that they just simply did not heed. And the background to Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6, and we're going to look at that real quickly, the historical background is another, really it's they've seen a good warning of what not to do, and yet they're about to enter into judgment because they're not going to heed that warning. So Jeremiah 23, 6, the background of it is, the southern kingdom of Judah was near collapse. I think that's the first blank on your sheet. The southern kingdom of Judah was near collapse after uh, almost 100 years after watching the 10 northern tribes of Israel taken into captivity, uh, Judah was now facing the same prospect. As a result of the sin of the 10 northern tribes, they had been taken into captivity, and now Judah, who should have known better, they've also followed this same line of disobedience, and now they are on the brink of being taken into captivity as well. Jeremiah was the prophet during this time, and he had started his ministry during the reign of Josiah who was known as a godly king. Josiah followed Manasseh and Ammon, who were known as extremely evil kings. It's amazing that in Chronicles and Kings, despite all of the work that these guys did, at the end of each of their their times as king, the Bible just boils it down to this. It says, and Manasseh did evil in the sight of God, or Ammon did evil in the sight of God, or Josiah did good in the sight of God. And I think there's a great a great principle there, and that is this. It really, what we do in our life all boils down to what we've done with Christ. You know, it didn't say at the end of these guys' reign, they built great buildings and they prospered and the people prospered and they made lots of wealth and they had lots of lands. It says they did good or they did bad in the sight of God. And that was what they went down in history as. Josiah went down as a good king. Josiah while restoring the temple, had, re-disco- had discovered the word of God, the Torah. This is found in 2 Kings chapter 22. Uh, it's probably after Manasseh, the evil king, had tried to destroy copies of, of the Torah, the word of God, and someone had hidden one in the temple, and as they're, as they're restoring the temple, they find a copy of Scripture, and they read it before the people, and there's, and, and there's great joy. The people have rediscovered the word of God, and Josiah led them toward God. But unfortunately, after his death, the people began again to, to not follow after God. They began to follow after their own devices. And, uh, you know, the Bible tells us that, that uh, really part of their problem, the, the reason that God was going to give them into captivity anyhow, is because looking back, even, even you know, bef- before Jonah, uh, Josiah at the reign of Manasseh, it says he did so many things to provoke the Lord that God was still going to judge the people. And uh, as a result of their sin, as a result of Manasseh's sin, look at 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 23. Talks about the judgment that he was going to bring on them as a result of this. 2 2 Kings chapter 23 verses 26 and 27. It says, however... The Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all of the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. The Lord said, I will remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off Jerusalem, this city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said my name shall be there. So this is the setting that we see Jeremiah coming into. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of a terrifying situation if you're Judah. Zedekiah was the king of Judah. He was the 21st king, and he was the last king of Judah as well. He was the third son 
of Josiah. And Zedekiah was the king. We come into this context of Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6. Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon. He was an enemy of Judah. And so Zedekiah, he sends two priests to Jeremiah, and he says, I want you to inquire of the Lord from Jeremiah, and I want you to ask him what, what is going to happen. And he was hoping for good news. He was hoping that they would be that they would not be turned over to Babylon. They wouldn't be destroyed. But the sad reality is he got the opposite news. And really, the news that he gets from Jeremiah is chilling. It's chilling. He says, God's going to judge you. Look at Jeremiah chapter 21. Jeremiah chapter 21, verses 3 through 5. So these two priests come down. They say, Jeremiah... King Zedekiah wants to know what's about to happen. He's hoping for good news. And look at verses 3 through 5. Jeremiah 21, 3 through 5. Jeremiah said to them, You shall say to Zedekiah as follows, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And this is, really is chilling. Behold, I am about to turn back the weapons of war which are in your hands, with which you are warring against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the wall. And I will gather them into the center of this city. And look at verse 5. This is scary. I myself will war against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, even in anger and wrath and great indignation. God not only says you're going to be turned over, you're going to go into captivity, but he says I'm going to fight against you to ensure that happens because of their sin. Listen, if we can learn anything from this, it's this. God takes sin seriously. And he tells the people, I'm going to fight against you. And he, and he uses those, those terms we've heard in the past with an outstretched arm and a mighty with an outstretched arm and a mighty, you know, with my strength, I'm going to fight against you, just like he delivered them from the Egyptian captivity. And he, he, it's chilling, it's scary. Because of your sin, because of the sin of your fathers under Manasseh, the provocations with which he provoked me, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to allow you to be turned over. In fact, I'm going to fight against you to ensure that that happens. So God tells them the Babylonians are going to attack and one way or the other, some by sword, some by famine, some by pestilence, one way or the other, you are all going to be turned over to King Nebuchadnezzar. And that's in Jeremiah. Look at verses 6 and 7, 21, 6 and 7, continuation here. I will also strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast, they will die of a great pestilence. Then afterwards, declares the Lord, I will give over Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people, even those who survive in this city, from the pestilence, the sword, and the famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their foes, and into the hand of those who seek their lives, and he will strike them down with the edge of the sword. He will not spare them, nor have pity, nor have compassion on them. And that's pretty scary, and that's pretty sad, but listen, God in his grace still gave Zedekiah a chance to repent. He gave him a chance to repent and be restored. Look at chapter 22. Verses 1 through 5. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah, and there speak these wo- this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on David's throne, you and your servants and your people who enter the gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness, and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Also do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if... You men will indeed perform this thing, then kings will enter the gates of this house, sitting in David's place on his throne, riding in chariots and on horses, even the king himself and his servants and his people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house will become a desolation. So he says, 
I'm going to bring judgment upon you, but I'm going to give you one other chance. If you repent, I'll relinquish. I won't do this. But if you do not repent, I will make you a desolation, is what he tells to him. Is what he tells him. But the rest of the story is, sadly, Zedekiah did not repent. And so God continued with his, with his plan, and he carried out his judgment. Yet even in the midst of all of that, there was still good news. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. There was still good news, and there's still a promise of good things to come. In chapter 23, he starts out warning against the false prophets who have harmed the people of God with a false message. He talks about how the false prophets have scattered the people of Judah. Look at chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. He says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of, the, of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and you have driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. So that's his warning to the false prophets. Rather than leading the people to God, they've scattered them. Rather than leading the people to God, they've led them away from God with false prophets, with their false word of God. And that's what he says to them. But then in verses 3 through 6, he gives them great comfort. The people of Judah tells them that one is coming who is righteous. Look at verse 3. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock. He says, you've scattered them, but I myself will gather them out of all the countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their pasture. And they will be fruitful and will multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend to them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely. And do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. And this is clearly a messianic passage. This was not, as some have said, this was, this was saying that he's going to bring about a series of kings, perhaps, that are going to be righteous rulers. This is not about that at all. There's none who is righteous. The Bible tells us that in the Old Testament and New, Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Yet in this passage right here, we see one who is not only righteous, but it says that he will be our righteousness. This is one who is righteous, and he also will be righteous in the place of unrighteous man. He will be our righteousness. This is talking about Jesus Christ. So, truth here is this, God is fully righteous. Truth here is this, man is unrighteous. So as we think about the righteousness of God, we, we transition to this thought. And it's a, it's a thought that people have been asking for, for since the beginning. How can unrighteous man stand before righteous God? You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The problem is none of us are perfect. I've got a one-year-old baby at home, and I can guarantee you he's a sinner. I mean, he takes, just before we left, he was beating up on our four-year-old, three-year-old. I mean, he was, he was trying to drop elbows on him. He was getting mad at him, trying to bite him. I mean, he's a sinner. No one is righteous. No one is, is in our own nature, good. And the truth is, God is righteous. Man is unrighteous. Jesus said we have to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. You know, in the South, if you go up to someone in a religious Bible Belt South, most people are going to claim to be Christians. You might get a few that don't, but most are going to claim, I'm a Christian. 
Some may go to church once a year. Some, some may go three times a year. Some may go once every three years. But they're going to probably say, I'm a Christian. And I think the two main, you know, if you were to go up and just knock on random doors and say, what, why should God let you into heaven? I think there's probably two main answers you would get. Two main work answers. You know, one would be, my good, what? Outweighs my bad. I'm mostly, I do more good things than I do bad things. And probably the second answer would be, and we love to do this one. Well, let's talk about my neighbor. That guy's bad. I'm a whole, if God, God's going to let one of us in, he's going to let me in. That guy beats his wife. That guy does this. That guy does that. And we, we tend to want to trust in our own righteousness to get in, to be good enough. But I want to give you two examples, an Old Testament example and a New Testament example of men who encountered the righteousness and the holiness of God and what their response was. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Chapter 1. I mean verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. Isaiah was a prophet. Isaiah was a godly man. In Isaiah chapter 6, he has a vision and he sees God. And let's see what his response is. Verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. The word for Lord there is Adonai. It means Lord or ruler. So Isaiah says, in the year of the earthly king's death, I saw the true king. Lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. So, again, we have this heavenly scene and this amazing scene. You've got these these scary, wonderful, brilliant-looking creatures with six wings crying out day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The temple is filling with smoke. The foundations are shaking. And you've got the king seated seated upon the throne. The, the, The train of his robe fills the temple. Look at verse 5. Then I said, Isaiah, then Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isn't that amazing? You know, in this day, prophets would, would make pronouncements. And if it was going to be a positive pronouncement, they would say, blessed is. Blessed is the nation. Blessed is the man who does this. Or they would pronounce a curse. Woe unto the man, or woe unto the nation who does this. And you've got a prophet of God in this passage. A man who, who is one of the most holy men on earth at this time. A man who, what he does, requires his voice, requires his lips to speak. And he comes into the presence of God and he pronounces a curse on himself. He says, woe is me for I am unclean. He sees the righteousness and the holiness of God. And then he sees himself. One man said this, he said, when Isaiah saw God for the first time, Isaiah saw himself for the first time. So you've got one of the most holy men on earth and he comes into the presence of an infinitely righteous, infinitely holy God and he's... He knows he's ruined. He says, I am sinful. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So our righteousness isn't going to cut it. If Isaiah's righteousness didn't cut it, if Isaiah was ruined in the presence of God, I'm pretty sure we're going to be as well. New Testament example. Flip over to Philippians chapter 3. 
Philippians chapter 3, and this is when Paul gives his resume, his spiritual resume. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And here's where he gives his resume. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness, righteousness which is found in the law, which is in the law, found blameless. So he gives his resume here. He says, first of all, circumcised the eighth day. Circumcision was a sign of being God's chosen people. It was a sign of obedience to God's commands. It's a strict Jewish rite. And an eight-day-old baby can't take himself to have this done. His parents took him there, which tells us that his parents were, were, were devout. His parents, he had the right parents in this sense. Of the nation of Israel, again, he was part of God's chosen people. Of the tribe of Benjamin, he was a favored tribe. A Hebrew of Hebrews, he didn't give in to the popular Hellenistic ideas of the day. He didn't give in to the Greek culture. He stayed on the straight and narrow path. As to the law of Pharisee, at this time, at the time of uh, Christ, there was only about 6,000 Pharisees. It was a very difficult, very hard life, and Paul had devoted himself to that. He had excelled. He had gone far. He was a Pharisee. Then he says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Zeal was like a two-sided coin. One side was love for God, which on the other side meant hatred for anything that didn't line up with your beliefs. To the point of even wanting to kill people who didn't believe like you. Paul was zealous for his ancestral traditions. He was zealous for what he considered to be a way to get his own righteousness by following the law. He says, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, I was found blameless. Paul followed it as closely as humanly possible. But look what he says in verse 7. This is after he came to know Christ. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, literally dung. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Look at this. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul looked at his own righteousness just like Isaiah did and he realized he was ruined. Because he could not be right enough. He could not do enough to be right with God. So back in Jeremiah, in the midst of their hopelessness, in the midst of what seemed like a terrible, awful, hopeless situation, and in our context today, in the midst of what looks like a terrible situation, we're sinners separated from a righteous, holy God. In the midst of all of that, There was the good news that there was coming a king who would be not just righteous, but who would be our righteousness in our place. This passage in Jeremiah is a beautiful picture. You know, 
they didn't fully understand what that meant. We today are on the other side of it. We're on the other side of the cross. We can look back to Jeremiah and we can realize the ramifications of the fact that there is coming a righteous king who will be our righteousness. And we are partakers of his righteousness today if we know Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. He is our righteousness. He takes our filthy rags, our filthy garments, when we come to know him, when we confess our sins and and, and believe in him, when we do that, he takes our filthy rags, casts them aside and clothes us in his own righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 6, by his name he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. He did what we were not able to do. You know, it amazes me again, religious south, We have people here, those same people, if you knocked on their door and you said, how did you get here? Were you just a circumstance, just a a chance, or were you created? And they'd say, God created me. Would you agree with that? Most people here would say that, God created me. Or, well, how do you have the, how how are you breathing right now? Well, God's given me the lungs to breathe, and he's given me the breath to breathe. Most people would say that in the South. And they'll say that God is the creator. They'll say that God is their sustainer. But when we talk about salvation, it's up to them. I'm going to do the best I can to get in. Listen, we're here because God put us here. We have breath because God has given us breath. In the same way, spiritually, we're we're in a dead situation. And unless God gives us life, unless God gives us his righteousness, we're in trouble. And this passage is a wonderful reminder The fact that a king has come, a king who is our righteousness, he has come and he is good. So what are some implications of God's righteousness in our lives? The second part of your notes here, the implications of God's righteousness in our lives. In other words, what should our response be? Number one, we need to realize as believers in Jesus Christ, we can rest in our salvation. We can rest in our salvation. We don't have to work for salvation. Romans 4, 5 says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. I want to read you a story about a, just a quick little article about a man in India. I saw this a few years back on TV. It's a man in India who is a strict Hindu, and he decided that for, for part of his spiritual pilgrimage and to promote peace, he was going to lay on the ground and just start rolling everywhere he went. Arms out, flailing, and he's just going to roll. That's what he decided he was going to do. Let me read this to you. This is from an article I found online. Barreling down a sizzling hot road in a cloud of diesel fumes and dust, Ludkan Baba is on a serious roll. He lies flat on the ground, turning himself over and over like a runaway log. Limbs flailing as he bumps across potholes. I've been to India. There's a lot of potholes. Splashes through mud puddles and falls deeper into a spiritual trance. Like any Hindu ascetic, he undertakes severe penance in order to liberate his soul from reincarnation's endless cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. Stretched out in the middle of the road, rolling hour after hour, mile after mile through crowds and heavy traffic, he is making his trip to eternal bliss. But this is no ordinary holy roller. He is also also on a mission to bring peace to the world. His devotion and alms-raising power has earned him several disciples and many admirers, and the title Lud Khan Baba, which means the rolling saint. 
He has rolled thousands of miles in the last 19 years, turning round and round so many millions of times that just pondering the thought can make your head spin. Before the last 19 years that he's been rolling, they said the previous seven years he spent standing. He would sleep standing. He didn't sit for seven years. So this is a guy who in order to basically earn his concept of salvation has rolled thousands of miles over a 19-year span. He stood up for seven years straight, slept standing up. And then we see this passage here. From our Christian worldview, we look at it and we realize we have rest in our salvation. We have a king who is our righteousness, who has imputed his righteousness upon sinful man who will call upon him. So principle number one, we work out of love, not out of law. Again, we don't have to work for our salvation to please God. We work for him because we love him. John 14, 15. And again, I mentioned this at the prayer breakfast Thursday morning, if any of you men were there. But John 14, 15, Jesus, just before he was taken hostage, just before he was about to go before the authorities and be crucified, he tells the disciples in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that was a radical call. Disciples were about to be tested. Disciples were about to have to watch Jesus go to the cross. And surely in their mind echoed the truth, if you love me, you will follow me. If you love me, you will obey me, which is what Jesus had just, had just told them. If we love him, we're going to obey him. Just like if I jump out of an airplane at 30,000 feet, if I do that, then I'm going to die with no parachute. I'm gonna, if I jump in front of a train going 100 miles an hour, then I'm going to die. If we love Jesus, we will obey Jesus. It's, condi- it's a conditional clause. If we love him, then we will obey him. And I think so many times... We, we get these backwards, and we think, if I can just do enough good things for Jesus, I'll grow to love him. You know, that verse there does not say, if you obey me, you will love me. It says, if you love me, you will obey me. And it's so easy to get those, those backwards, to think, if I just do enough good things, then I'll grow in my relationship and love toward God. And really, it does the opposite. It causes us to be embittered toward him because we're not serving out of love. We're serving out of legalism and out of obligation. But we're to serve him out of a sense of, of, of love, out of a sense of overflowing because of our love for him. You know, Genesis chapter 29, the story of Jacob and Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel, wanted to marry Rachel. He goes to her father and they work out this deal. Work for me for seven years and I'll give you Rachel. You can marry her. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 29 that Jacob worked those seven years. And the Bible says this, it says, but those seven years seem like but a few days because he loved Rachel. There's a difference between serving out of love and out of obligation. We serve out of love, and as a result, it doesn't really seem like serving. It seems like joy. It seems like we're doing what God has called us to do because we love him and we want to serve him. Back to the point, as believers in Jesus Christ, we can rest in our salvation. And out of our salvation, out of the righteousness that's been given to us, out of the love that we have found as a result of our relationship with Christ, we then serve out of that. We can rest in what we have in Christ. We don't have to roll around on dirty streets to try and earn salvation. We, by the way, this is totally not related to what I'm talking about, but that same guy who is so disciplined, disciplined enough to roll around for 19 years and not get off the ground, disciplined enough to stand for seven years, they said he can't kick a cigarette addiction. I thought that was kind of interesting. Smokes five packs a day, but he said he's... Anyhow, that's funny to you, isn't it, Gregory? Me and you have a sense of humor that's very similar. I thought that was kind of 
funny. He can roll around for 19 years through mud and Indian streets, but he can't quit smoking. But anyhow. Number two, we have assurance of the kindness of God. Implication of God's righteousness in our lives. Number two, we have assurance of the kindness of God. You know, men will say, where is God in the midst of evil? Where is God? During 9-11, that question was asked a lot. I remember seeing a panel with John MacArthur and some other pastors, and they asked the question, where is God? If we have a good God, why would he allow this to happen? Where is God in the midst of, where is God in the children who are starving in Africa and India? Where is God in the midst of all the political turmoil? Where is God in the midst of all of these different things? And you know, I think we missed the opposite side of that, and that is this. Why did God send his son to die for that? We forget about that so many times. We look at it, where is God and all that? God has sent his son to redeem people who have caused all of this mess. Better question is, why in the world did he choose to love us enough to send us to redeem us from this? We have assurance. God is kind. It's the, the Bible says in Romans, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He is kind, and we have this assurance when we understand and when we see that we have a righteous king who would be righteous and give us his righteousness in our place. So principle number two here is uh, we can trust him. He always does what is right. He is righteous and just. He loves us. John 15, 13 defines what love is. It says love is when you lay down your life for your brother. Christ came, lived a perfect life, laid down his life so that we might have life. So we can trust. We can have assurance of the kindness of God. We can trust him no matter what the situation is like. We, we can trust him, whether it's good or bad. You know, disciples went into a storm that God had ordained, that Jesus had ordained, and it was a bad storm, and they were struggling, they were afraid, but yet it was for their, it was for their good. God sent them into that on purpose. It taught them to trust him more. It taught them to, to, to follow him more closely and more deeply so we can trust him. He always does what is right. Third implication is this. Because of the righteousness we have received, we have a great responsibility Number one, to live righteous lives. God has called us to live righteous lives. He is, the Bible says, be holy as I am holy. God has called us to live righteous lives, certainly for our own good, but also for the world. They're watching. They want to see us. You know, again, one of, the, one of the greatest excuses you hear for why people aren't Christians is what? Too many what? Hypocrites. The world is watching. God has called us to live righteous lives because we bear the name of Christ. But number two, because of the righteousness we have received, we have a great responsibility, number two, to share his righteousness with others. Romans 9.30 talks about how salvation is available to the Gentile also. It's available to all men. The availability is there. The problem is the witness is not there. You know, there are people in this world who have never heard the name of Christ and who may very well never hear the name of Christ. How hopeless sounding is that? While we have so many people who know the gospel, and we are stewards of the gospel, we are stewards of the great righteousness that God has given us, and we are stewards to be, we're to be found faithful as stewards to tell other people about this righteousness. But I think, the, I think you know, really the reason that, well, I'm not going to say that, but the cost of, of telling of the righteousness of God, the cost of sharing the gospel can be big. You know, we live in a very, we live in a country where it's, we're very free to share the gospel. You know, if I share the gospel with someone at the gas station, I don't have to worry about the cops coming and putting me in jail. I want to tell you a story about a man by the name of Dimitri. 
This is from a, a book I've, I just recently read called The Insanity of God. A man by the name of Nick Ripkin wrote it, and he is probably the world's foremost expert on the persecuted church. He's done years, 20, 30 years of research on the persecuted church. And uh, this is in his book called The Insanity of God. He was at our church last year, and um, he tells a story of a man by the name of Dimitri. Dimitri grew up in a believing family in the former Soviet Union. This probably happened probably 30 years ago. This is a real story. probably happened 30 years ago. He grew up in a believing family. Over time, communism had destroyed most of the churches in his little village in his area. It, they had systematically gone in and they had, they had killed or persecuted or tortured the, the pastors until they finally just said, we've had enough, we'll stop. Or they literally tore down the church buildings. And once he was grown, the nearest church was a three-day walk. So he would only take his family to church once or twice a year just because it was so far to get to and so hard to get to. So Dimitri said, you know, I'm going to start teaching the Bible in my home. Mainly because he, didn't, he says he didn't want his children to grow up not having an understanding, not knowing the Bible stories, not knowing about Christ. So he decided he was going to do that. And he went and told his wife, he said, you know, you may think I'm crazy. I'm not a trained pastor. That was kind of the mindset. You had to be a trained pastor. So I'm not a trained pastor, but I still remember a lot of the Bible stories. And we still have a, a Bible. I think I might start doing a Bible study with our children. What do you think about that? And the, the wife said, I'd love that. I've been praying that for years that you would do that. And so he began. He started reading the Bible at his home. Didn't really know a whole lot about teaching it. He just kind of read it or retold stories to his children. And after some time, the children were learning the stories, and the children began to love the stories, and the children began to tell their friends the Bible stories. It was, a, it was real to them, and it was alive, and it was powerful. They started singing hymns together. The children came to the dad one day, and they said, Dad, you know those songs we sing at church once a year? Can we start singing those here? And he said, sure. Yeah, we can start singing those. So they started singing hymns together. And then the children said, why don't we pray together? We do that at church. Let's start praying together. And he said, okay, well, I don't see any reason why we can't pray together. So they began to pray together. And the village they lived in, the little homes they lived in, had small walls, tiny walls, really not thick walls. Everyone could hear what was going on. And quickly it became, it became understood that, that something was going on of a religious nature there. And so people began to kind of come up and knock on the door and just listen in and began to meet together. And then they began to hear the stories. And they began to tell their neighbors. They began to pray together. They began to, do, uh, began to sing songs together. Eventually, the group grew to 25 believers, and the local authorities noticed, and they threatened him for starting a church. And the funny thing is, in the book, Dimitri says, I laugh looking back on it because I told him, I said, I'm not starting a church. This is, this is just some people getting together, and we're reading and preaching the Bible. We're singing. We're giving. We're helping the poor out. We're not, I haven't started a church. He had so little biblical knowledge, he didn't realize that they had a church in their house. And the authority said, well, still, it looks like a church to us, so you better stop or there's going to be consequences. He continued on, and once the group hit, hit 50 people, he was mysteriously fired from his factory job, and his wife lost her job as a teacher. He continued on. The group grew to 75 people. One night, an officer came in in the little bitty house, and he waded through the people up front to Dimitri. And he grabbed Dimitri and he beat him. And as Dimitri was laying in a pool of blood, he said, I've warned you for the last time. Next time, there's going to be big problems. And the man waited back out. And the, the, Dimitri tells the story. The man got to the back and a little old lady grabbed the officer by the shirt 
put her bent finger in, her, in, in his face and said, you have touched the man of God, you will not live. Three days later, the man dropped dead of a heart attack. And just like Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, fear swept through that village as you can imagine. Church continued. No, not the church. It wasn't the church. The group that was meeting in town, which was a church, continued. Eventually, he was arrested for what he was doing, and he was put in a prison for 17 years. 17 years, but that's not the end of the story. Demetri said every day he would wake up, and he had two disciplines he would do. Number one is he would stand up early in the morning, every morning, and he would sing what he called his heart song to the Lord. In, a op- in just a prison that was very open, thousands of men, hardened criminals, hateful people, and every morning as he would sing, they would mock, they would spit, they would throw stuff, they would throw human waste at him. Every morning, that was one of his disciplines. Number two, whenever he could find a piece of paper, he would write down as small as he could, as many Bible verses or songs he could remember, and he would, on the cold, wet wall, he would put it on there as his offering to God. That was his offering. And he said every day when they would come there and find that, they would beat him and threaten him. But every day, those were his two disciplines. He would sing to the mocking of the other prisoners and he would put scripture or or songs on the wall and then he would be beaten for it this went on day after day week after week month after month year after year these were his two disciplines one day they came in and they told him they said we have killed your wife and your children and we're going to bring you confession paper tonight for you to sign and he said bring it his will was broken at that point he said bring it i'll sign it tonight if i can get out of here i got to go check on my family and see if they really are dead but that night, he said he just had an overwhelming peace that God, that his family was still alive. And so next morning, they came in, and he said, I will not sign that. They beat him, put him back in his cell. Again, year after year, this kind of stuff happened. Around year 17, they decided it was time to kill him. And the story goes, he was walking down the executioner way, about to go out into the courtyard to be killed. And uh, as he was walking by, he said an unbelievable thing happened. He said those... Thousands of hardened criminals, as he was walking by, they all stood at attention and began to sing that same song they had heard him sing year after year. He said it scared the guards. The guards let go of him and said, who are you? And he said, these are his exact words. He said, I am the son, I am, not the son, I am a son of the living God and Jesus Christ is his name. And they took him back to his cell and a few days later they let him go. He said, they just one day led me out into the courtyard and just pushed me out the door, and I was free. He said, I went back home, and sure enough, my wife and children were still alive. And God used all of that to to reach countless lives in that prison. And in his village, people were still meeting. God had used Dimitri. And Dimitri talks about how he was indebted to what Christ had done for him, the righteousness of God that had been given to him. He was a steward of it, and he knew as a steward he needed to be found faithful to sharing that wonderful awesome message that we as unrighteous men can have the righteousness of God put upon us given to us because of what Christ has done for us so we are indebted because the righteousness we have received we have a great responsibility first of all live righteous lives and second to share the righteousness with others to every men people from every tribe tongue and race God has called us to share that news with them so tonight just a couple things i just want you to know when i read a passage like this it it gets me excited to know that we have a great god that we don't have to work for our salvation it's a gift god has given it to us he has made it available at a high price the, the life of his son we can have his righteousness given to us praise god for jesus christ who came 
and did what we couldn't do, died in our place. And we can rest in the salvation. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can rest in that. You are secure because of what he has done for you, because of the righteousness he has given you. Number two, we can be assured that he is good. We can trust him no matter what we're going through. God is good. He does good. He is good. He is kind. He is righteous. And we can trust him in the mid- whether things are good or bad, whether we're in the storms of life or we're on the calm water. We can trust him because he is good. He is righteous. He is just. He is holy. And number three, we have an obligation to live a righteous life and to tell others about him. And I don't know about y'all tonight, but again, I'm just, I've, God's just been, this year I've just kind of had a revival in my own heart, just I've spent time in the Word, and, and when I read passages like this, it makes me grateful, grateful for what God has done. We don't deserve what He's done for us. We don't, we're enemies of God. The Bible tells us that, you know, God demonstrates His love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to be our, to be our, the Lord is our righteousness. If there's anything good in us, it's from Him. You know, what do we have that He has not given us? What do we, we had no way to, to be saved, but God in His infinite love and mercy and grace did what we couldn't do, and He offers His righteousness to unrighteous people. The Lord is our righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time tonight. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, it is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Lord, I pray tonight, God, that, that we would all leave here tonight, Lord, with just a great sense, Lord, that we would be humbled by your love. We'd be humbled by your grace. We would be humbled by the fact that though man rebelled, though we sin, yet in your goodness and in your kindness, you have allowed us to repent. You have allowed us to be forgiven. You have allowed us to not have to do crazy works to try and earn our salvation, but we can rest in the fact that if we know you, you have clothed us with your righteousness and we can stand before a perfectly righteous and holy God, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ did. Lord, we thank you for that sacrifice. We are grateful, Lord, and we are amazed at your grace and in your presence. And Lord, may we live our lives in light of the fact that you are our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Lord, may we live our lives to tell others about you and to make you known for your honor and for your glory. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.